0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast.
1: Tonight on Primetime Politics, these were guns that were designed for wartime. Uh, They have no legitimate recreational purpose.
0: Ottawa unveils the first phase in its promised gun buyback program, working to get thousands of assault-style weapons out of circulation by compensating businesses and firearm stores. Coming up, we will speak to the Public Safety Minister about the initiative and the early pushback to his plan. Also...
2: We keep receiving unreasonable and unaffordable offers.
3: That's not how bargaining works. Madame Forge. Striking workers
0: rally on Parliament Hill as wage increases and working from home stall negotiations between the federal government and the Public Service Alliance of Canada. How long can Ottawa let the strike keep going? We'll speak to our political strategists.
4: And... Canadian Armed Forces have two Hercules aircraft in the region now.
0: Preparing to evacuate more Canadian nationals as citizens trapped in Sudan call in Ottawa for more help. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. In the wake of the mass shooting in Nova Scotia, Ottawa made the decision to ban hundreds of firearms, assault-style weapons which the Liberal government says were designed for maximum harm and not for hunting. As part of that decision, the government also promised to buy back any weapon from Canadians who owned a gun from this newly created list. The first step of that program was introduced today, compensation for businesses and store owners, which would be guided in part by a sports shooting association. Now, in a moment, we will speak with the Public Safety Minister about this initiative. But first, take a listen to the exchange that this issue sparked in the House of Commons today.
1: Is He put all the resources into going after licensed, law-abiding, trained and tested firearms owners who are the statistically the least likely people to commit a crime. Meanwhile, he has turned loose onto our, our streets, repeat violent offenders... Who have committed literally dozens of violent offenses in Vancouver under his bail regime? The same 40 people had to be arrested six thousand times. Wow. That is what he has brought to our streets: crime, chaos, drugs, and disorder. Why won't he start going after the real criminals with a common sense, Justin?
3: The Right Honourable Prime Minister the Conservative Party was serious about going after crime, they would support our freeze on handguns. Uh, They would support the fact that we we have uh, banned uh, assault-style weapons, uh, and that is something uh, that they continue to avoid, to dodge, to spread misinformation and disinformation on. The reality is, Mr. Speaker, we've continued to invest in police when the Conservative government before me cut services and funding to police. They They cut cut services to CBSA. They (laughs) cut initiatives that actually kept Canadians safe, and now they're just in the pockets of the NRA.
0: Well, for more, we're now joined by Marco Mendicino, Canada's Minister for Public Safety. Minister, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, when you made your announcement this morning uh, that you were launching this buyback program from uh, industry and from store owners, you you also said that you're doing so with the collaboration of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. But shortly after that news conference, that organization said that they remain skeptical as to the viability of this industry buyback. How do you respond to that? Well, I
1: was pleased to announce that we have a partnership with the CSAAA to achieve a significant milestone in the uh, purchasing back of approximately 11,000 assault-style firearms uh, in in conjunction with uh, vendors and and small businesses right across the country. Why is this important? Uh, Because uh, these are guns which were designed for a battlefield and have absolutely no place in our communities. Um, this is uh, uh, the back-end brace of our decision to implement a national ban on assault-style firearms, which has now been in place uh, for three years. Um, there are other steps that we need to take, and of course, this comes against the backdrop of uh, the third anniversary of Porta Picantruro. Uh, I would point out that the Mass Casualty Commission has called on the government uh, to continue to take additional steps uh, so that we can be sure uh, that these guns, uh, which Again, we're designed to exert the greatest amount of lethal force in the shortest period of time are not only banned and prohibited under the law, which they are now, uh, but also removed from our communities and mm-hmm. working in partnership with the CSAAA, uh, we will be able to do that. Okay but
0: but again the, that organization say they still remain skeptical and I think part of that has to do with the cost of the program. They still have no idea how much you're willing to allocate uh, for this compensation to, to the gun industry. How might you be able to address that skepticism to the organization with which you're now working with?
1: Well well, first by continuing to work with them and the fact that we have a signed contract with them I think shows the good faith between the government uh, and that organization along with the other businesses uh, with whom they are going to be uh, facilitating the surrendering, the compensation and ultimately uh, the destruction of those uh, AR-15 style uh, firearms. But also uh, we're going to be upfront with Canadians about how we're going to cost this program. Um, It is a program that does not have precedent, it is a program that is national in scale, and it is a program that will require good faith partnerships within industry, which is why we reached out to the CSAAA, but as well with law enforcement and with gun owners themselves and we're going to do this work in good faith with all of those
0: folks. Can you you ballpark a figure though at this point?
1: Well the budget, uh, which was just introduced a few weeks back, uh, does allocate about uh, just shy of $30 million or $29 million uh, to uh, create a platform which we're going to use in conjunction with the CSAAA Uh, but then we're going to roll out the next phases of this program uh, which will put more of a focus on individual owners so right now our primary focus is to work with industry and vendors and small businesses uh, in the uh, gun industry and this agreement is a, a significant milestone on that front
0: yeah absolutely as you say a significant milestone here but but you know when we talk about this program and again this is for industry and store owners for from whom you're going to get these guns back from how many assault style weapons will you actually be removing from public circulation
1: Approximately 11,000 in the first tranche and there will be many more I'm sure that uh, we'll be able to uh, compensate gun owners with. And that is exactly the work that we have uh, rolled up our sleeves on and are doing um, with with as much energy and intensity as we can. And we're also trying to be efficient and that's why the, the agreement that we announced today does allow us to streamline our processes. So by working with the CSAAA, we have strong lines of communication with them. We also then have uh, good relations with uh, small business owners who have these approximately 11,000 assault style firearms in their inventory. And then from there, uh, we'll go from uh, to uh, compensating, uh, to surrendering, uh, making sure there's appropriate invoicing, and then ultimately deactivation or destruction.
0: Okay, so, so, so good relationships, as you say, with the industry. But what about the provinces? You know, Alberta and Saskatchewan, Uh, don't seem to be on board with this program. What will you do to reach out to them?
1: Well, uh, first, I would point out that there are some provinces who are also very supportive. For example, uh, Quebec and British Columbia have both been um, very outspoken in uh, the joint work that we are doing around the banning of assault-style firearms. Uh, And we also maintain lines of communication uh, right across the country. You know, we've held um, federal, provincial, territorial meetings with uh, our provincial and territorial partners to talk about reducing gun violence. Um, The bottom line is is that uh, in order to keep Canadians safe, All levels of government need to work together. And that is equally true when it comes to getting assault style firearms out of our communities. And what I hear when I speak to Canadians about this, including um, gun owners, is that they get it. They understand that there are some guns that were designed for a battlefield and have no place in our communities. I think provincial and territorial governments understand that too. And, um, you know, we'll keep at it to, to, to make sure that we can realize this important goal.
0: Okay. Now, now, the second phase of this buyback program will be extended to individual owners. Again, this is industry, this is shop owners. The next step will be. Be individual owners. They currently have uh, amnesty to own the weapons until uh, October, I believe. Will you be introducing the second phase soon or
1: will you be extending that amnesty? Well, right now we're focused on advancing this program as quickly and as efficiently as possible, but but without compromising the integrity of that program. And so uh, we're going to do whatever uh, we possibly can to move it forward, uh, recognizing that the amnesty period does provide some relief uh, to those uh, gun owners who purchased their uh, firearms, which are now caught by the uh, national ban, which we put in place under an order in council issued in 2020, so that we can be fair to them and there are additional steps that we will take uh, beyond uh, today but today is important today is about making sure that we have concretized uh, an agreement with industry leaders so that we can get that first uh, bite out of the apple if i could put it that way and and then from there we'll we'll continue to make as much progress as we can afterwards with the next phase of this program working closely with individual gun owners as well
0: marco mendicino really appreciate the time today thank you for that
1: thank you very much for having me
0: Let's catch you up now on more of today's political news, starting with the government's five-year plan for official languages.
3: This new action plan will help ensure the continued growth and prosperity of both English and French across our country.
0: The $4 billion program includes a new policy on francophone immigration. The government wants more newcomers to fill a shortage of bilingual workers and have them settle in francophone minority communities. The plan also has funding to expand minority language education and attract more French language teachers to Canada.
3: They still have 9% on the table over three years. And they're telling us, they're telling us that we have to move. That's not how bargaining works, Madame Fortier.
0: Well, that is the message from the PSAC's Chris Aylward to the Treasury Board President as striking public servants came together on Parliament Hill today. Aylward says the government is stalling and he wants the Prime Minister to tell Mona Fortier to make a higher wage offer. Fortier says the government remains at the table, but she is calling union demands unaffordable and unreasonable. This is now day eight of the strike by more than 100,000 federal workers.
4: The Canadian Armed Forces are ready to begin conducting evacuation flights and will do so once conditions on the ground permit.
0: To Sudan now, as the Defence Minister Anita Anand says two transport planes and 200 personnel are near Sudan and standing by to remove Canadian nationals. She says the timing depends on access to landing space in Sudan and whether evacuees can safely reach those planes. As of this morning, 700 Canadians had asked for help in fleeing Sudan's violence, and 150 have already left with the assistance of other countries. Well, with more on these stories, let's bring in our political strategist. Greg McEckern is an Ottawa-based consultant and former liberal strategist. Kate Harrison is the vice chair of Summa Strategies. And Kim Wright is the principal with Wright Strategies. Hello to the three of you. Hello. 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 Listen, I want to begin here with the uh, Public Service Alliance strike, obviously now dragging out into a second week. And there are a few issues holding up negotiations, among them salaries, perhaps not, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, the union does say uh, that they dropped their demands from the last one we heard, so down from the uh, 13.5% over three years. But the government seems to be holding very fast to its 9% offer. Uh, Greg, why is the, the government playing hardball here?
5: I'm not sure it's as much hardball as just basic negotiations, but there is the reality um, that we have to pay for um, the pandemic. And I'm sure that the government is keeping an eye on everything that they have to, they've committed to, whether it's, you know, the healthcare deals with the provinces or this. Um, There's also a a bit of a feeling that this is an an air war. Um, The president of the Treasury Board, Mona Forche, has started communicating through open letters. So kind of going over the heads of the union directly to the public and to union members and, and what's interesting is i noticed last weekend that the the rhetoric really changed to get like a lot tougher from the union very personal when it came to forche and Perhaps it's a coincidence, but that came right after some media reports that the number of union members that actually voted was pretty low uh, by Canadian standards. So um, it, it does feel like there's an air war going on. And you know, from what I saw today at the press conference, it felt like the union leadership was still talking to their membership. So you know, as someone based in Ottawa, when I listen to local radio, I li- you know, read local news. Um, you know you're hearing from union members who are still a bit uncomfortable that they're on strike and then they know that the the public hasn't yet kind of joined um, their cause i think people can understand some of the wages seem pretty low when you you know, in an expensive city like like Ottawa, for example. But in terms of the work from home, a lot of people in the private sector were given those instructions back in November. So, I, you know, I still feel like the federal government, you know, understands that, you know, the public might not be completely on side with the union and they have that as part of their, um, you know, negotiating tools.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, now PSAC, and I'll bring you, uh, Kate, into this. Uh, they do argue that when when they talk about a salary increase, increase, they just really don't want to fall behind the cost of living. And and they point to the fact that CEOs did get bonuses through the pandemic. Government's uh, bottom lines across the country increased thanks to uh, inflation. What do you make of the union demand? As I said, they, they just want to keep up with the cost of living.
2: Yeah, I, I understand that to a point, and I think that that's why there there is rightly the argument for some correction, uh, but we don't often see the reverse argument, of course, which is when inflation is low, uh, salaries decrease. So there needs to be a little bit of, of understanding that we are in an exceptional time. Inflation has um, it perhaps leveled off for a period of time that um, we still see PSAC negotiating for uh, an exorbitantly high rate. I think Greg made a really important point, which is that uh, from the outside, these are good-paying jobs. There was quite a bit of flexibility during the pandemic uh, to work from home. We didn't see uh, paychecks clawed back as a result of the nature of work shifting or when government services were inaccessible. Uh, these people still got paid, and that that's all well and and good. But when you're on the outside, now looking at the complaints being leveled from PSAC, I just don't think it lines up with where the public sentiment is at right now things might change if service delivery starts being massively disrupted. If we see disruption um, at borders, for instance, or when people are traveling, uh, the delays in passports, et cetera, that's when the government will start feeling more pain. Mm
0: -hmm. Kim, I I, I wanna bring you in, but you know, people, uh, we've heard both both Greg and Kate reference public sentiment, but there was this uh, poll that came out today uh, from Angus Reid, and it says, Canadians are actually supportive of many union demands, with 55% of Canadians agreeing that federal employees uh, do have a right to work from home. Uh, What do you make of the negotiations so far?
4: Yeah, they they switched, the government switched over to Air War because they took a playbook out of Doug Ford and said, look, let's just talk about wages and make them vilified of being these high-paid workers, as opposed to uh, the range of workers, the people who help fill out your passports, and they do the government services. It's really also an interesting pivot because you also saw the government of Canada somehow being able to come up with $13 billion for a private company called Volkswagen to come in and and, uh, invest in a town, which, frankly there's a lot of electric vehicle charging infrastructure companies uh, in Canada that would have liked those kind of resources, let alone the public service uh, who could then get those raises that they've been asking for because there would have been that money in there. But the the prime, sorry, the prime minister uh, chose to, you know, take a playbook out of, you know, corporate welfare bums and give that kind of money out. It wasn't necessary, but now they're trying to pivot away and call, call PSAC members, well, good public servants a bit lazy, and maybe they should come out of their out of their homes and come back to work. The reality is we all need to. Every business that's listening and that is watching this is saying, okay, we need to rethink how we do some work from home. How do we do job shadowing? How do we do job training? And the government becomes a bit of a test case for that. But the reality is there's lots of money within the federal government. There are lots of programs they could allocate to making sure that uh, that these workers are taken care of. They've chosen to go into a public battle because they think that's the way to get people to to cave on this. And the reality is that you just need to treat your workers fairly. And as always, a negotiated settlement is always the best settlement, not only in the workplace, but for taxpayers as well.
0: Okay, Okay. so we'll, we'll keep watching negotiations but you know I'm quickly running out of time. I do want to ask about Sudan before, before we're done today. Uh, as you know at this point the government has evacuated dozens of Canadian nationals from Sudan. Hundreds more are calling for help. Uh, a minute to each of you here. What more, if anything, can the government do to address the situation? Uh, Greg?
5: I, I think continuing to do what they're doing right now, which is working with our partners, trying to find angles in collaborating with other countries. You know, I, I did a quick check, Michael. Um, you know, The Economist in early January mentioned that there was some economic strife in Sudan, but this, I think, took a lot of people by surprise But in mid-April. So I think, you know, Canada, for the country, the size we are, I think we're doing uh, our level best.
0: Uh, Kate, what would you say to the matter?
2: Yeah, there's a certain level of readiness that Canada just has been not able to, to achieve on matters like this for, for years now. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the situation we saw in Afghanistan and the the disorganization that occurred there. I mean, we have to continue to make sure we've got a good relationship with allies because they continue to be the ones to to bail us out of these really uncomfortable circumstances. Germany and others stepped up and have been putting a number of Canadians on, on their aircraft. But it does draw attention, Michael, to the need to uh, better resource, um, you know, rescue military defense efforts, uh, and that is a slow-moving process.
4: Kim? Absolutely. What we remember from those images out of Kandahar were uh, children being separated from their parents, people having to go to internet cafes that had made, you know, the, the paperwork that had maple leafs on them to try to fill up paperwork. And surprise, surprise, the Taliban got a little grumpy about that. How would you, we not have a readiness model? What is our intelligence community uh, not doing to flag this? Or does the minister just sit on these reports like they have so many others? And at the end of the day, Canada has this great reputation uh, as a, in their humanitarian efforts but when push comes to shove somehow we always seem to step in the paperwork and that has to change because there is going to be more Sudans, there are going to be more Kandahars, there are more problems in the global community that Canada just seems to be ill prepared to deal with.
0: Okay, well, always get uh, good to get your thoughts on the matter. Uh, Greg, Kate, and Kim, thank you for the time. And I swear, before the season's through, I'm just going to have a whole half hour with the three of you because there is never enough time. Uh, but thank you for today. Thank
4: you. Thank you Thanks so much.
0: Senator Michelle Odette was given a distinct honour today, presented with the 4 millionth Moosehide campaign pin. Now, this is in recognition of the senator's work fighting and raising awareness about gender-based violence, both before and during her time as senator. The Moosehide campaign is an Indigenous grassroots organisation, and to tell us a bit more about it, we're now joined by Senator Michelle Odette herself. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So uh, I want to begin with your reaction. To be presented again, the four millionth pin of the Moosehide campaign, how significant is that
3: for you?
6: Well, it was u- huge. It started when we received the, the, the invitation or the request, and I was like, it is big. But it was this morning when I was in the same room of, you know, people, grassroots people, family, and the daughters of uh, Monsieur Lacerte. And I presume it was a a little square, you know, like we see since the beginning of this campaign. But it was a huge, beautiful beading with the symbol of the uh, moose on it, and it became very, very, very obvious for me that ceremony, powerful, and the responsibility that I have to carry uh, until. I don't breed, I would well, say.
0: Well, let's talk a, a bit about both, uh, beginning with the yeah. Moose Hide campaign. As I said right off the beginning, this is an indigenous, grassroots-led organization. What sets it apart for you?
6: Well, it tells the rest of Canada that, that uh, for too long, I would say, that we denounce and still today denounce that it's something we're facing every day. But also we come with solution. We come with place where we want to mobilize Canadian people, no matter where you're from or where you live, that you can be part of the solution. And the beauty also is that for us, we believe as Indigenous women, where I'm coming from, that men are part of the solution and they could do something. So, a dad who spoke to his daughter when they went moose hunting, they decided together to do this initiative and where men stand beside us. Not for us. Beside us, and that for me, it's very powerful.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, tackling gender violence by having the participation of men and boys. Mm-hmm. Now, but the statistics around gender-based violence in this country—you talk about your your lifetime work, the the responsibility mm-hmm. that falls on you—and this isn't all on you, obviously. But the numbers are still staggering. Uh, according to StatsCan, every six days. A woman is killed by an intimate partner in this country. When it comes to indigenous women and girls, they are more likely to experience sexual violence than non-indigenous women and girls. Uh, Does the issue get enough attention, do you think?
6: No. No, it's not. It's not the same, though, when I was in my 50s or 20s and 30s, that now we cannot pretend that it's an isolated situation and it's happening only over there or this place everybody knows because there's a national inquiry because there is that initiative and many movement across Canada that says enough is enough and these are the fact but I want to say also that yes intimate partner but what we notice with the national inquiry it is also because I'm outside and it's not even my spouse or ex-partner it's because I'm an indigenous woman that I was a target mm-hmm. and that's for me it's ooh unacceptable
0: do you think there's been progress made on that? I, I don't know if many Canadians were aware of that fact except for the last few years.
6: Progress, hard to say, but one thing I, I, I notice over the 30 years of being in, involved or since I was born, but obviously I remember more the uh, past 30 years, that there's a conversation that is there right now that it didn't happen before. We have a report, a national inquiry, we have the TRC also the Truth that Reconciliation. We didn't have those reports, which is the Canadian language. We're telling you this is wrong and this is our dissolution that came from grassroots families and women who think that it might save their life or the next generation of young women that are coming. So it wasn't there before. And mm-hmm. to conclude, very quickly, Joyce Echaquan, one of our sisters who left the world in circumstance that nobody should leave the world like this. Now in Quebec, we see faces or people that would sign article opeds that are not even Indigenous, that are walking beside us. Not for us, but beside us. Mm-hmm. And it's huge for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's, it's also very interesting, because you, in speaking with Indigenous leaders in this country, they always point out the fact that if we're on the, the road to conciliation, if this was a story, we're actually only in the first chapter. We're not anywhere near the, the, the end of the first chapter. We're just at the first paragraph of the first chapter. And with this organization, the Moose Hide campaign, it's not only about gender-based violence, but it's also raising the issue that Mm -hmm. the violence that they're trying to address has its roots in in, uh, colonialization. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that?
6: Well, as an example, uh, when I was born, I normalized the violence. I normalized that because my mom is Inu and my dad is Quebecois, that there is a wagon, and they used to call it like that on the train. This is for the savages, and this is for the white people until 1989. I normalized that. So for me today, I don't think we would accept that. But the beauty is that that train today, my nation owned that train. Reconciliation, but also resilience, and telling people that the problem was imposed to us, the bias is still there, or the behavior, attitude, policy, and so on, are still there. But because we know now, we don't want to be complicit, we want to act and change those things. So colonialism, it's not over. We're still acting in those spaces. Whether we like it or not, I don't. But we understand that we need to change it, and I feel the change is happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Moose Hide uh, campaign, their annual day is coming up, May the 11th. Yes. Uh, so, So, a couple of weeks away, what do you hope Canadians, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, do and take a moment for it on that day
6: well to realize that maybe it's look like very simple but it it generates conversation uh we we exchange but also personally when we wear it it's because i commit you know i stand or it's my personal responsibility but no matter where we work where we involve or where we volunteer There's always a friend that we know that is facing violence, or it's hidden or taboo. This campaign maybe could help this person to understand that there is project, programs, initiatives, services to help her or him to go away from that violent situation. So it's a responsibility, it's a protection also, but it's also something that you have to commit. You just don't wear it. You're in action. You have to do something. Well, that's what I do. Full of love.
0: <laughs> well, I, I love that you took the time to speak with us today. Uh, no, Senator si. Michelle O'Dette. thank you very much for it. Thank you. And that is our program for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everybody here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow, but up next, Esther avec Les